seats. And uh, welcome if you are joining us online. It's great that you've, uh, that you've tuned in. And uh, we just pray and hope that you will have a wonderful time with us as we share the Word of God together. It's great to see everybody in the house of God again. And uh, it's lovely to, uh, to start gathering and, uh, and sharing worship time together and communion and the Bible. And so it's just, it's just a joy to feel like we're starting to get back to normal. And, um, and so we're grateful that you've come out this morning. And we're, we're excited about all the good things that God is doing at Willow Park Church. There's a lot going on. And, uh, and more and more news is coming out over the next few weeks about some of the changes and some of the new staff. Hopefully you saw in an email that we sent out uh, this last week that uh, we have uh, now got a new worship pastor. His name is Zach Pearson. And, uh, and his lovely wife, Menukia, and their three children are starting in September. They're actually in town right now looking for houses, <sighs> moving from just outside Winnipeg. And so please pray for them. Um, but uh, Zach, I'd encourage you to uh, root out that email if you haven't received it yet. If you do want to see some of, the email, some of the videos, there's a couple of videos there about Zach and his ministries coming from a, a very large church just outside Winnipeg. With They've got like 150 volunteers every weekend, which I just think is showing off, frankly. Um, but uh, he's a tremendous uh, blessing and uh, he's got a, a lovely gift, but his real gift is developing and seeing worship teams grow and prayer and discipleship. So we're very excited. Please pray for Zach and Manukia as they transition over. Because having moved around a little bit, I do know what it's like moving from country to country and, and city to city, as many of you do as well. They're, well let's cover them in prayer because uh, they're an amazing family. We're very excited. And there are a couple of other uh, new roles that are being filled that I will let you know about in the coming weeks. Let me, uh, let me start with a scripture that is very well known. There's a danger as Christians, that when we read certain scriptures, we kind of go, oh yeah, I know what this is all about. And yet I want to show you as we talk this morning that actually this scripture reveals some really uh, fascinating things that maybe we glance over and don't really fully appreciate on a day-to-day basis. So this is the scripture, uh, Galatians 5, uh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so that's the Apostle Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And, uh, and he is writing about what you could say are like the vital signs of the Christian life. You know, when you go to hospital and, or maybe you've, uh, you've been with somebody in hospital, they look for those vital signs, whether it's blood pressure or heart rate and all these different aspects that actually show that you're alive. It's, it's like this, this passage is showing us the vital signs of the Christian life. What's really interesting as a pastor and as somebody who lives, as you do, in a post-Christian culture, these, this list is actually something that everybody is striving for. We have this innate desire to strive for these vital signs to be shown in our everyday life. That our world, and especially in the, in the first world, in our culture, we strive and long for peace, 
for justice, for love, for the ability to coexist. We want to eradicate hunger and homelessness and racism and sexism and and abuse. All these things that we just know don't belong. We know, we feel it. We might not be able to, our culture might not be able to say why they think it's wrong, but we just know it's wrong, which in itself is a proof that there is a God with an absolute goodness and law. Otherwise, how do we know these things are wrong? If you don't know what's right, how do you know it's wrong? So what is right? God is right. These are aspects of God's character that we just seem to be born with. It's an echo, if you don't know Jesus, of who you should be and who you'd be designed to be. And, and this isn't peculiar, this straining towards a better life to our world. If you go back 2,000 years when Jesus was walking the earth, then it was exactly the same. They wanted the same. They wanted, to, they wanted to eradicate hunger. They wanted to eradicate homelessness. They wanted to eradicate abuse and, and all these injustices. They wanted exactly the same. And we get caught up in our generational or cultural moment, and we think the problems of today are unique to us. Well, they're not. They just have a cell phone attached to them or a computer attached to them. It's an innate human desire to want something better and to strive to something that sometimes just seems impossible. Jesus came and he described a new kingdom. And he pointed to a new kingdom, and then he described the new kingdom. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see an amazing description of what this new kingdom is like. And he talks about hatred and anger and and lust and all these different aspects of society that is absolutely relevant to us today. And not only did he describe what the new kingdom is like, but he also showed us what the new kingdom is like. He lived out life in a way that we can look to. If you don't regularly read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is like the biography of Jesus' life, if you want to know what God looks like, sounds like, acts like, speaks like, read the Gospels because Jesus is the perfect fully divine God living on this planet and also fully man. And so you get a picture of what God's heart is for us. But it's exactly the same. God, Jesus was saying this new kingdom, that Christianity is about experiencing earth as it is in heaven, Jesus said. That he described and showed us this new kingdom, that in many ways you can see the vital signs of God's kingdom in this descriptor in Galatians chapter 5. See, Christianity at its essence is living out the principle and the characteristics of this new kingdom. It is not an escape plan. It is not a pension plan. Christianity is not just securing your future whether it be on earth or in heaven. And so over the years, Christianity has been dumbed down into thinking that actually it's escaping the world's corruption and getting to heaven as quickly as possible. That's not what Jesus came with. He came with this idea that there can be heaven on earth, that we as Christians can show this new kingdom, these vital signs to a hurting and broken world and actually have, and I, and I borrow this statement from the Bible, but also from a, and I really like this mission statement. I wish I'd come up with it. There's a church that says their vision is essentially, and I've replaced our city in Kelowna as it is in heaven. Isn't that a great vision statement for a church? Gosh, I wish God had told me that a few years ago. In Kelowna as it is in heaven. What's it like in heaven? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. 
And this might be a surprise to you, but if you're a Christian, you are not going to spend eternity in heaven. <sighs> Amen. Okay, let's how to empty a church really quickly. The Bible actually speaks about a new heaven and a new what? Earth with King Jesus on the throne. So we're not, you cannot, those of you who are not big on worship and big in singing, if you kind of got it in the back of your mind, the slight panic that you're going to spend eternity just singing songs in heaven with little angel wings, you can relax. You're not. You're actually going to be spending eternity in a perfect place where there is no sickness, no disease, no sadness, new heaven, new earth, new kingdom. But Jesus said that we are able to start living that out now. So eternity starts now. And our calling is to live out heaven These vital signs, this fruit of the Spirit in our day-to-day culture, in a culture that is desperate for them, but has no way of actually finding it. To borrow a statement from a very good book that I've recommended to you before, by Mark Sayers and Disappearing Church, even though our culture is desperate for the vital signs of the kingdom that Jesus described, all the good things that Jesus described, even though we want that, they actually, and this is the statement from, um, from Mark Sayers' book, they want the kingdom, but they don't want the king. It says should be without the king. Kingdom without the king. Christians want kingdom with the king. Our culture wants the kingdom without the king. Because having a king means that we don't get the right to choose all the time. That actually, we don't get to be in command of our own world. That really... We don't have authority over everything. See, our culture strives for that. We want our own kingdom. We want to be our own kings and our own queens. But we want all those kingdom things, but without King Jesus. Uh, for a few years, I, uh, I ran a, a marketing consultancy, and sometimes we would do things for new builds, houses, advertising, marketing strategies for new houses. And one of the things that is kind of a core essence of marketing is that you don't try and sell a product, you try and sell an emotion or a lifestyle or a feeling. And if you can sell an emotion, then it, we make decisions based on our emotions. It fascinates me, and I wanted to share this with you. If you've not already noticed, take note of some of the marketing around cars and houses and, uh, and new neighborhoods. It's really, really intriguing. What they're doing is they're actually trying to sell you the kingdom. They're trying to sell you love and peace and joy. And if you buy this house, you're not going to have any problems. You can sit there on your porch in your beautiful rocking chair with your perfect family. And you can rock back and forth and gaze into your perfect future with the sun streaming down. Because it never rains if you buy this house. There's never going to be any maintenance to do. There's not going to be any arguments. It usually involves a guy or throwing a child up in the air. And the child's like, oh, dad. And it's just so good. They're selling you the kingdom. But actually, the reality is, no matter how perfect the marketing is or how perfect the desire is, the reality of actually getting to that place doesn't follow. You can build as many houses and design as many great cars as you want. We all know that that is not going to be the answer to which we are all striving for. But we're suckers for it. Oh, maybe if 
I could just get that set of curtains, I think my life would be perfect. And we, we fall for it because it taps into the divine fingerprint that's been placed in each of us. We're striving for these things. And yet we want them without the king. You see, in Jesus' time, they wanted to overthrow the Romans. They had an answer that said, you know, if we could change the political system, if we could change the justice system, then we'd get the kingdom. In our world, it's exactly the same. If we could just check or change the socioeconomic kingdom or the, the way politics is run, and if this person was in charge, if this person wasn't in charge, and it goes on and on, and really all you're doing is fluffing cushions, thinking that if you can just change the color of your couch... That somehow love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness is going to flood into our lives. It's a bit silly really, isn't it? But we do that. Let's just strive for the, the periphery, the temporary, in the hope that it will change the eternal. And see, as Christians, our joy and privilege of following Jesus is to introduce our world to King Jesus, the one who can actually bring change and transformation, the king of justice, of compassion, of empathy, the author of righteousness and love, the king of, 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 of life value, the one who values life so much that he laid down his life for you and I, for all who believe can have eternal life starting now. The king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, we can point to him. And say, he is the answer, the one who is making all things new again. Another way of putting it is, we must help people meet the who, as well as striving to change the what. It's about a who, it's about a person, it's not about a principle, it's not about a new world order, it's not about a political change or a social, uh, social justice change or serving this or stopping that and putting that. It's not about that, it's about a person. King Jesus. And so these vital signs as Christians, if you are exploring Christianity, then this gives you an insight into really what the... I hate putting in this term, so just forgive me because analogies always fail. But it's like the benefit package. That, that just you get a slight inkling as to what world could be like and what heaven will be like and what the new earth will be like and what your life could be like. And what it should be like, Christian friends, in this amazing passage. The fruit of the Spirit. These vital signs. And as you read through them, what becomes really clear is you can't manufacture these yourself. You can't figure this out yourself. In fact, Jesus himself said, he also told them a parable. This is Jesus. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student, the, the, the actual word there is matites, which is where we get our word discipleship from as well. Sorry, the teacher uh, is not above, that should be over, teacher, is not above the teacher, matites. But everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. So what Jesus is saying is this, is that, look, if you want this fruit, if you want this kingdom, then you need to be careful who you're following. In other words, if I put it in modern vernacular, who's the influencer in your life? Who's the one that you are looking to as the one who will bring you what you're striving for? What is it you're looking to? It might be a person. It could be a thing. It could be a business. It could be a lifestyle. Whatever you look to saying, that is going to save me. 
Jesus is saying, look, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. So when you become a Christian, you are instantly transformed. It's called conversion. The Spirit of God floods into your life. It slams into your soul and starts you on a trajectory that actually brings you back to the original design God had for you as a human being. And you get to start over. But as part of that change, there's an ongoing change. Christians call it sanctification. This ongoing change. How does that change come about? It's by following Jesus. In other words, becoming his disciple. We talked a lot a few months ago about what discipleship is. And it's very essence and core. This word student or apprentice is a good way of thinking of it. You become a Christian. You become an apprentice of Jesus. What did those apprentices at that time do? They used to follow their teachers, their rabbis, do what they did, follow where they went. They'd even speak like them, talk like, um, say the same things as them, and live with them. So much so that a rabbi student, you'd be able to tell which rabbi they follow by the way the student speaks and acts and their body language. They became so aligned with their rabbi. And so what Jesus is calling us as Christians is come into this new kingdom, represent Jesus well, so that we can point other people to Jesus. But the way that we do that is by being an apprentice of Jesus and following him and him being our teacher. So as we become like him over time, we get nearer to God's true design for us. We grow and mature. What does full maturity look like? Well, we're back to this list again. That's what full maturity looks like. It's an interesting metaphor all through the Bible. The Bible, as you read it and from cover to cover, and I recommend you do that, you'll see metaphors coming out constantly. And one of the main metaphors is around fruit or harvest, anything that grows, trees. Why does Paul use this metaphor? What's important to note is when you become a Christian, you are given the Spirit of God and the fruit of the Spirit. So you have in you all things that pertain in life and godliness. You have the Spirit of God in you at conversion. If you're not a Christian, you come into submission, you ask for forgiveness, you confess Him as Lord, then the Spirit of God changes you. That is, He is there. He is in you as a Christian. The outworking of that is this fruit. So in some sense, you have the seeds of all these things already resident in your life. And they should be steadily emerging and growing. So I want to encourage you as you consider perhaps the gap of where you feel you are at, where you know you should be, the type of person you want to be, the type of mom or dad that your, pet, your kids need you to be, the type of employer you are, employee, friend, brother, sister, spouse, that there's this gap that we know how we should be, and yet we feel like we don't know how to get there. Can I encourage you that if you're a Christian, you have everything in you that you need in order to get there. But we have to grow. We have to grow. And this, again, this metaphor of fruit is because fruit or harvest grows. It emerges. And so I'm going to just going to quickly share with you some encouragements about change and transformation. That as a Christian, is yours to receive. And as somebody who's just thinking about Jesus or exploring Christianity, is also yours to receive as a gift of salvation for all who believe in him. 
is also for you to receive too. So the first thing is this. Growth in Jesus, this growth, this metaphor of fruit, is mysterious. It's also sure. This growth will happen. Growth in love and joy and peace and all these other character traits or vital signs is very, very gradual. It's very mysterious. Those of you who have children, you will know that no matter how long you stare at your kid, you are not going to see them grow. That would be really shocking and strange. Do you actually physically see somebody growing and yet you can see the evidence of it and you can measure it. So in our house, and um, the team did a great job of getting this. I, you don't need to analyze it. It's just, <laughs> you just going to go, what's going on? So what you've got there is all our kids' names and it goes lower and their ages and their heights on the doorframe. If we ever move house, we're taking this doorframe with us. Sorry. Um, because this, this is, and it's funny because up here now is a tremendous competition happening between Luke and Jack. And Luke is catching, uh, sorry, Jack is catching Luke up really quickly, right, Jack? And yet Luke keeps referring to the fact that he's got an abnormal wingspan. Luke has this really weird, almost kind of uh, Marvel-esque um, wingspan, looks like, I don't know, eight foot or something. And like he's six foot one and a bit. Jack, like, you can just see, like, Jack is here and Luke is here. But I think this line above is Luke not telling the truth. I think he had the ruler at a slight angle. But it's this tension. But I've never watched Jack grow. But this is evidence of the growth. It's mysterious. When does it happen? You know, sometimes there's been times in my kid's life where you kind of go, man, I feel like you were taller than you were a couple of weeks ago. And then you put them on the measure and sure enough, they've, they've jumped up. You get a sense of the growth, but it's mysterious. Sometimes it's seasonal. And, and that's exactly the same with Christian growth. Christian friend, be encouraged. Growth is gradual. And you might look at yourself and think, I don't know if I'm changing. Trust in the process. Trust in the one who is bringing the change. And yes, you can measure it. It's difficult for us, though, this. Because we live in a world of comparisons, don't we? Social media drives comparison. Sometimes it's great. But oftentimes you look at your Instagram feed or you're on TikTok or you're on Facebook. If some of you don't know what I just said, don't worry about it. Don't even look into it. It's not worth it. But if you're looking at your Instagram feed and you're seeing what could be, and then you're comparing yourself to that, or you're comparing your location to that location, or your situation in life to that situation in life, and you're desperate for transformation and change, it can be frustrating because you compare yourself to that, and it builds up this discontent because you think you are not changing. But the same with these spiritual fruit. That maybe you have traits of anger or lust. You have traits of just being gossipy or impatient. And you're like, oh, I just keep reverting back to this. Just be patient. Be patient. You need to be patient and gentle with yourselves, just like Jesus is with us. This is a long game. This is not a short term. Now, unfortunately, Slow and gradual life transformation doesn't make great stories. As pastors, we don't often get people coming up and saying, well, it's taken me 70 years to beat this habit. You're like, oh, 
gosh, really? But what we do tend to do is bring up stories of transformation that seem to be instant, and then we sit there and go, oh, man, I suck. Because like, I'm struggling so bad, and yet all people around me just seem to be overcoming sins left, right, and center. Like, and you're like, oh, what's the point? Be gentle with yourself. Be patient. Because the good news is that over time, you'll see a difference. And life will give you an opportunity to measure yourself. What do I mean by that? A few years ago, in well, it was actually 2003, spring 2003. Our children were very little, and Zoe, I think, was probably... How old was Zoe when we arrived to Canada? How much? Six. So Zoe was six. Luke would have been about four. And I remember, and I've spoken about Rill before, and actually people online do watch from Rill and surrounding areas of Rill, and, and I'm not going to go into a description of Rill, but Rill is a particular type of town that is, um, I guess a police officer would say it's lively at night. I'll put it that way. You know, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a rough town. Uh, but they had this pedestrianized area, and so it was very clear, big sign, no bikes. Right there, big sign, 2003. So I'm walking with Sarah outside Woolies. How do you know what Woolies is? Woolworths, yes. Outside Woolworths, right on the corner. And there's this lad on a bike, on a push bike, on a a bicycle, comes and rides into the pedestrianized area and knocks Zoe over. She goes flying and immediately starts crying. This lad just keeps on pedaling. He chose the wrong guy on the wrong day. Because I just ran after him. Sarah was yelling, Zoe's crying, completely oblivious, icy red. This kid, sorry, this guy, he was probably 22, 23, there is no, I don't care if I'm going to chase him for an, I'm, there's no way this kid's getting away from me. And I caught him, maybe three quarters of a kilometer, kilometer away, by, he slowed down a bit, I caught up with him, got him by the scruff, and I pulled him off the back of his bike. I'm like, because <gasps> But in between gasps, I said, look, you have a choice. (laughs) I said, either, and he's he's fighting around, and so now, thanks to my dad, I have him a nice lock. I said, you have a choice. I'll either drag you to the police station, which was right there, which is like half a block away, or you can come back and apologize to my daughter. And he told me to... Go away, in certain terms, which didn't help. So now I see red more, and I said, I don't think you understand how serious I am. I will drag you to that station, or you can come back and say sorry to my daughter. And he told me to go away again, and then said, fine. And so then we walked. He's not the smartest, because he went to get on his bike to walk back, and I went, no, we're going we're gonna to walk. And so we walked all the way back to Zoe and Sarah and Jack. What I didn't realize is my running away, running away, running after, actually caused a tremendous amount of pain to my wife and my daughter because they, because real's the type of city you don't know what might happen. And they didn't know what would happen around the corner. See, pride welled up, anger welled up, the kind of I'm going to be a hero welled up. Some of you are like, oh, this is awesome. But actually, it was pride. I wasn't thinking about Zoe in that moment as much as I was thinking about pride. 
And sure enough, we got back, he apologized, he then got on to go on his bike again, which I know, as soon as he went around the corner, guess what? He's going to be getting on his bike again. Years later, I'm in San Diego. A lady across the way, Sarah and I are carrying coffees. I know this stuff follows me around. Carrying coffees like this outside San Diego. We're on holiday. It's a beautiful day. And a lady across the way, suddenly this guy runs, grabs a bag. She's thrown to the ground. She screams and he's off. Gave my coffees to Sarah and I was off. I was running after this guy. Now I'm running in San Diego. But you know what was interesting is while I was running, something kicked in. I'm like, this is not right. I shouldn't be doing this. I should actually be more concerned about the lady than I am about him because it was just pride. It wasn't being a hero. It was being an idiot. It was just pride because for sure I could get stabbed or shot in San Diego. Or, uh, sorry. (laughs) It is. Um, It is. There was a change. Now, that's quite a dramatic difference, but I've changed. Now, I'm sure the Lord will see it fit to test that, and and, and that's fine, but there's a difference. There's a change. And life will give you opportunities to show you whether or not you have changed. And as a Christian, as you press into Jesus and you make him your rabbi and you chase after him and you make him your focus, then what actually happens is this change continually happens in your life. It may not be quick, but it is mysterious. It is sure. It will happen. And then life will give you an opportunity to show that suddenly, oh, I'm different. I responded differently. I responded with more love. I was more patient. Maybe somebody who loves you will actually point this out. You're kinder. And you go, wow, yeah, yay me. Then I need to work on humility. Dang it. And, and you know, but the Lord is gracious. He's kind. He's patient. Be gentle with yourself. Keep your eyes on him and change will happen. Secondly, growth. It, oh, <laughs> I know, I'll leave that to Drew to figure out. Growth is inevitable. If the Spirit of God is in your life, you will change. If the Spirit of God is in your life, you won't. You don't get less and less angry. You don't get less and less lustful. You don't get less and less patient, uh, less and less impatient. It gets worse and worse and worse. C.S. Lewis had an interesting perspective on this. I'm not saying this is my theology, but he believed that hell is actually just an eternal getting worse of all the horrible characteristics in your life. So if you're angry and bitter now, multiply that by infinity. Imagine what you're going to be like then. And, that's, and he equated that to hell's fire. I'm not saying I believe that, but it's an interesting concept. You don't get better and better by yourself. But as a Christian, you will change and you will grow. You will worry less. You will become more patient. You'll become more loving. You will become wiser. You'll be able to face your troubles more effectively. It's inevitable. And as we focus on him, we must never accept it's just the way I am. That is a lie. If you respond to a loved one when they say, you know what, love, I, I find this really difficult about you. And maybe it's a blind spot you have. If your response is, well, get over it because it's just the way I am. No, it's not. That is just giving in. It's not the way you are as a Christian. It's actually not the way Jesus is. So therefore, it's not the way you should be. So don't give up on yourself. The Spirit, if He is there is always going to cause you to grow. Growth is eternal. Uh, sorry, internal. Notice in the list, what is the fruit of the Spirit? 
It's not being a great leader. It's not being a great counselor or friend or pastor or parent. It's not being good at singing. It's not being good at dancing or practical stuff. It's not even being more generous. It's not even being more selfless or your better IQ or a more sparkly charisma. It's none of those things. What it actually is, is Jesus' spirit. It's the spirit of God. It's the spirit of the kingdom. Think of it this way. The fruit of the spirit is not fruit of is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of your Spirit. So your good works, your good actions, your good decisions are not fruit in this context. They're external, not internal. And Paul references, actually, this brings nothing. Your good works brings nothing to the table. See what Paul says. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, in other words, you're willing to be a martyr for your belief, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What is Paul saying? You can have all the external fruit you want. Other people might think you are just literally God's gift to them. You might even see change in other people's lives because of your good works. That's great. But if you remain harsh and angry and impatient and rude and mean, all under the banner of just the way I am, actually, you have nothing, Paul said. Because that is not who you were created to be. It's not who I've been created to be. Jesus is interested in who you are. Who you are becoming. And so as a Christian, we have this beautiful promise that this fruit has been placed in our lives, but it needs to grow. So how does it grow? Well, growth is emergent. As I read this and wrote this, it was funny because those of us who have been around church long enough, it's like, ooh, this is a controversial word. The emergent church. you remember that? How many of you remember the emergent church? Do you remember what a big fuss the church made about the emergent church? Where's the emergent church now? It's funny how things come and go, isn't it? We get really fussy about stuff and God's got a plan. Growth is emergent. Something really interesting about the fruit of the Spirit. Paul uses the word fruit, singular, and then gives us a list, plural. Those of you who are like kind of grammar police will know that is not the way you structure a sentence. It's the fruits, Paul. But Paul actually says singular. Why is that? There's a massive amount of study and commentary over this, but essentially it's as simple as this. It's given by one spirit, by one God, one complete change in a complete package. So, in other words, think of it this way. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and the list goes on. You cannot experience any one of those in isolation. For you to experience joy, you need love and patience, and kindness, and goodness. For you to really live out patience, then actually you need love, and joy, and kindness, and gentleness. They're a complete package. They're not a shopping list. Well, today I'm going to work on being more patient. I mean, that's a good thing. But for you to truly have long-lasting, effectual, definite transformation, that actually has to be the whole package, rooted in love. Next week, 
Luke is going to be speaking about love and joy together. But without experiencing true love, all the other things are impossible. This is why kingdom life without the king is impossible. You need transformation. You need transformation. And then the promise is, and I'm going to finish with this, it emerges. Love emerges the more you recognize that you are loved. Patience emerges as you recognize how much you are loved and how patient you are, uh, how patient God has been with you in your sin. Judgment decreases in your life as you recognize that truly, actually, you deserve to be judged for the things you have said and done. And yet God in His grace, in His patience, in His mercy has shown you tremendous love. And so as a result of that, you too can love. Love for others emerges because we are loved. Peace emerges as we let go of our control. Patience emerges as we see that God has been patient with us. Goodness or sincerity and integrity, it's all tied up with that word, emerges as we become more secure in Him. So as you look at this list, actually think to yourself, have I settled? Have I just kind of gone, it's just the way I am? It's just the way things are? That's not God's plan for you. It's not God's plan through you into our hurting culture. You see, our culture needs to see King Jesus in our lives. And this list is a descriptor of what that looks like. The vital signs of Christianity emerge as we place our attention upon the rabbi Jesus. And as we align our lives with him. And as we make much of him. See, at the beginning of this passage... Paul said these things, and they're really crucial in understanding how we develop and grow in these fruits. They are internal. They are uh, mysterious. They are inevitable. But we can actually position ourselves well to grow. Look what Paul says. But I say, this is just before the fruit of the Spirit passage. But I say to you, but I say, walk by the Spirit. That's a choice, by the way. Otherwise, why would he suggest you do it if we, don't get to cho- if we don't choose to do it? And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Notice the things of the flesh, and he, and he gives a list of those sins, those outworkings of life that we just know innately are not godly. But notice he says we desire after the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they oppose each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. So in other words, you have an enemy in your life. His name is Satan. And he's going to do everything he possibly can to keep you focused on the flesh. Even if it's through shame and guilt and lament, keeping focus on the flesh actually keeps you away from focusing on the desires of the spirit. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to shame you. He wants to pull everything about you apart and those who you love and those who you are around. That's his sole desire in life. And he's in for the long game. He is willing to camp out in your life for as long as it takes to see that destruction happen. And sometimes it'll often start. Sorry, sometimes it'll often. That's good grammar. It'll often start with the smallest decision, the smallest choice, The smallest innocuous thing, and before you know it, it consumes your whole life. It's the slightest glance, the slightest thought, the smallest decision. Oftentimes, it'll start with something that is good, and it turns in on itself, and becomes an idol, and consumes and controls you. 
How many times have you known or maybe you've experienced that it is a good thing to own a business and to, and to look after your family. But if that becomes the all-consuming thing, it turns in on itself and it starts controlling. You become a slave to it and it destroys you and your family. That's what Satan's about. So as you desire after the things of the flesh, because you believe that somehow if you can get the lifestyle that this, this certain decision promises, then everything will be fine. It's a lie. It's just cushions on a couch. It's not going to help. But then he says just after the fruit of the Spirit passage, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. In other words, put to death those things with its passions and desires. You notice how... This passion and desire is there. Who does the Spirit desire? It's Jesus. The Holy Spirit is all about Jesus, making much of Jesus, pointing us to Jesus. Who does the apprentice desire? His rabbi. Kept close attention to them, went where they went, spoke like they spoke. Their focus was on their rabbi. Their focus was on Jesus. Their focus was there. It was clear. It was not on the things of the flesh. It was on Jesus. And the best way to see this fruit emerge is by placing our attention on King Jesus. And the more amazing Jesus is to you, the more that the fruit emerges. The more you place him as center in your life and you dedicate yourself to, uh, to reading the word, to spending those spiritual disciplines we've talked about a lot, as you place your attention on him, even this week, you will find that the desires of the flesh get crucified and diminish and the desires of the spirit of Jesus increase and increase and growth kick starts for the long game, for the long game. See, Jesus produces the fruit. As we prepare the ground. That's why the scripture says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've got to work at this. And so between Jesus producing it and bringing it and and, and watering it and encouraging us in it all, we have to position ourselves and walk in the spirit and put to death those things that we know are not right. Friends, the easiest way to see growth happen in your life, and I've said this so many times, so many times, is identify those things in your life that draw you away from Jesus and don't do them. Then identify those things in your life that draw you to Jesus and do them. So if this particular app just seems to bring discontent in your life, it's not worth it. Get rid of it. If this particular person, and this is dangerous ground, This particular thought, this particular activity, this particular trigger in your life that draws you away from Jesus. If you find yourself habitually doing things that you know are not godly, then what are the triggers? Get rid of them. Find accountability. Stop. Put to death the things of the flesh. But at the same time, you don't just remove something you place your attention on. You need to replace it with something else. Replace those things with a passion and a desire for Jesus. Those simple disciplines in life of prayer and reading the word and, and having a Bible reading plan and journaling, getting alone with God, silence and solitude, fasting, having a Sabbath, resting. All these wonderful spiritual disciplines draw you to him and increase the desire and growth is inevitable. And then a world will truly see King Jesus alive and well in their culture. That's our calling. That's good news. And God is all about bringing that change in our lives. 
And so we're going to... What time are we doing? How are we doing? I think we have time for one song. And in this song, because I know what the song is, I think it's just an opportunity to do what I've just said and place our attention on Jesus. To place our thought and our prayer on King Jesus. So uh, if you're joining us online, God bless you. We love you. We miss you. And we continually pray for you. And I'd encourage you now to spend some time, maybe put some worship music on and spend a few minutes just, uh, just worshiping Jesus. Place your attention on him and pray. Maybe confess. Maybe that's something that we need to do is confess those areas of life that we know are not in alignment with his best for us. God bless you and we'll see you next week. And for everyone else, why don't we stand together? I'm going to pray. And hand to Sarah. Hallelujah. Praise your name, Jesus. Let me close your eyes.